Good morning to you. One of the things um, we talked about in January as a church, if you remember when we were here, um, was that our, our culture often talks about sort of making the most of today. That's the, one of the mantras that goes on. Well, live in the now, the self-help gurus tell us. This day is a gift. This day will never be repeated. So squeeze all you can out of it. Make the most of you can, you can out of today. Here's an example for you. A man called uh, Walter Dyer. He's an American self-help advocate, author, a lecturer. And if you can't read it there, he says, Stop acting as if your life is a rehearsal. Live this day as if it were your last. The past is over and gone. The future is not guarantees. So tomorrow morning, you roll out of bed, you have your cup of tea, and he says, Don't look back. Don't look forward. Look to the now. Live for today. And to be frank, it's not even just pop culture. These sort of lightweight, self-help enthusiasts who say that kind of stuff. The wisdom that they give is actually building on past wisdom. The Buddha himself says, do not dwell in the past. Do not dream of the future. Concentrate the mind on the present moment. Almost as if our friend Walter Dyer is into recycling. Yet it does raise the question for us, how do we live today? What is to be our focus? What are to be your priorities? What, are to be, what do you make of the opportunities of this day? Each day is a gift. Each day will never be repeated. But I think what we'll see in Joel over these next couple of weeks is that actually he would stand in stark contrast to Walter and even to the Buddha. This message of Joel, Joel says, look back. And he says, look ahead. And he says, live in the light of what you see. Look back. Look ahead. And you'll know how to live today. He looks back to what we read, as Ken read for us, this very recent or even current for them, horrific, it seems, judgment from God, this destructive locust swarm, and says, very frankly, learn the lessons of history as you see this locust swarm, because that's nothing compared to what will come. It's very stark, it's very striking. He says, what has happened gives us a hint as to what God will do. That the shadows of the past, they show us the future. So we're going to spend our first chunk of time thinking about this, the Lord's judgment. Not necessarily a nice thing that we like to think about, but it seems to be clearly there in Joel. We look back at both the past event that happened then, that Ken read for us, and we'll look into chapter 2 as well, and we'll see the judgment to come that points ahead. And then we'll look at the response that the people are to have to this judgment. It's going to be a big passage this week. It's going to be a big passage next week. So we're going to need to use uh, broad brushstrokes. But first point then, judgment from the Lord. And then our, our first point we've mentioned as well, he, he, judgment has come and it is coming. God has judged them and he says he will judge them too. So on the graphic, you can see, or you can see not so well there, but we've got two mountains. Those mountains represent, if you like, the different judgments, the little one that's happened and the big one that's to come. Chapter 1 looks back to mountain 1. Recent devastating locusts, famine, fire. So verse 4, what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten, what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten, what the young locusts have left, 
are the locusts of Eton. Or verse 10, the fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Verse 11, despair you farmers, wail you vine growers, grief for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up, the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm, the apple tree and all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. It's a horrific natural disaster. Locusts are well known to be incredibly destructive. You can read the scientific papers on them. They can eat the equivalent of their own weight in a day. They can fly over 300 miles in one night. The largest known swarm covered 400 square miles, made up of 40 billion insects. You can see for an agricultural community, that's going to be pretty devastating if they come your way. And yet the surprising thing is that Joel says, well, what's happened there pales into insignificance when you look ahead. Chapter 1 is just the shadow. Chapter 2 seems to be the main event. And the language is is ratcheted up in chapter 2. Just kind of glance over it with me. We're meant to feel the weight of it as we look at chapter 2. He talks of verse 1, trumpets and trembling. Verse 2, darkness and gloom and blackness and a mighty army. Verse 3, fire and flames and desert waste. Verse 4, this army is like horses and uh, cavalry. Verse 5, chariots and fire. Verse 6, those nations looking in, they're terrified by what they see. Verse 7, 8 and 9, we zoom in on the soldiers and we see them always perfectly disciplined. Their task is to, task is to destroy and to plunder. And verse 11 and our jaws drop. Who's at the heart of this army? It's the Lord. It's his army. They've come to do his will. For me, it brings to mind the Lord of the Rings films, if you've seen them. These vast, epic scenes of armies, the, the orcs and such like, swarming like insects. Everything that they cross is just devastated, obliterated. And then you skillfully zoom in and you see one individual uh, doing what they do leaving behind the devastation. And when is this day, this second mountain peak, this chapter 2? Well, we'll look at it more next week, but the New Testament seems to say it's the day to come, the final day of the Lord when Jesus comes back. Joel seems to be using imagery and concepts and ideas and pictures from then to tell us something about what's to come. So from the lips of Jesus... Mark 13, he says, but in those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. I take it he's looking ahead there to his return. And we've said it already as well, but this is the day of the Lord. This is not God on a nap and someone causing havoc while he's not there. This is his judgment, his judgment on his people. It's terrifying. 1 verse 15, alas for that day, For the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Or on to 2 verse 1. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. Or 2 verse 11. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? For now, just notice one thing with me. And it might sound strange in what we've just read. But but notice, this is to point us to the mercy of God. Often people say, well, the God of the Old Testament, he's harsh, he's judgmental, he's not very friendly. The God of the New is lovely and warm and cuddly, kind and merciful. 
And yet we must grasp that these past judgments of God are his mercy because they remind us of what is to come. They remind us of what he's like. There's a story told apparently a few years ago in Sydney, um, in Australia, there were shark attacks going on on various beaches. And so the authorities, of course, they put up signs that said, beware of the sharks and a nasty picture of a shark on the sign. And people complained. Please don't scare my children with those nasty shark signs. Can you see they'd missed the point, though? The signs were meant to scare us. They were meant to make us think. They were there to warn us about a terrible reality of what is to come. The point was, be scared. And don't go near those sharks. Well, so here, Mountain 1, in Joel chapter 1, is meant to make us think about the future and what is to come. Joel says, look back and linger and think about it. And don't let yourself drift. It might be stretching for our modern ears to believe, to like, And yet Joel is very clear. We need to take note. So, his judgment has come, and it is coming. There are two mountains in Joel. The mountain that's gone in chapter 1 and the one that's to come in chapter 2. The second thing to say is that it is universal. So Joel addresses everyone. This is, again, a surprising thing. It's not just for the elite or for the especially bad In an agricultural community, everyone is linked together like dominoes. The crop fails and everyone suffers. Chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, listen, elders, leaders of the people, top of the tree, listen. In fact, no, listen, everyone. Verse 5 to 7, wake up, you drunkards. The alarm has gone off, the pubs have had to close, the off-license is dry. Wake up. Verse 11, you farmers who have lost all your crops, your vines and fig trees and pomegranates and palms and apples, which of course then has knock-on effects for the priests. With with failing crops and and livestock that can't stay alive, you've got no sacrificial system. So you can't maintain a a kind of spiritual life that you're meant to. Verse 9, verse 13, no grain or drink offerings. It's a a catch-22 situation. We'll see in a bit there's a spiritual foundation for this judgment. But as part of the judgment against them, they're unable to maintain a spiritual life. If, if of course, it's physical sacrifices that the Lord wants, everyone's affected, everyone in the same boat. It's universal. And actually it affects the future generations too. That's another great surprise in the passage. It's not just the there and then, but it's for the children and their children. 1 verse 3, tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their next generation and their children to the next generation. This is a great word for us if we're parents. A great reminder on Mother's Day, what makes a great mum? Well, it's in part someone who tells their kids what is true. Who teaches their children what God is like. Might be unpalatable to our politically correct ears. But telling truth about God. News is to pass on and on and on. Ripples are to flow down the ages. We're to learn from this event. Let it flow down the ages. 
it can be easy as you're a parent to just teach your children the fun stories in the Old Testament, the key characters with the smiley faces in the children's Bibles, but actually teaching what God is like and how he acts in history is key. It feels a long way from us in Joel 1, but God is still holy and we're still sinful. We know our own hearts. We know what we're like. We know our selfishness. He's still a God who who has to judge if he's perfectly holy and just. So we need to teach our children sensitively, but we need to teach them nonetheless. Teach them who God actually is. And the question at the end of Joel chapter 2 that we're left with, verse 11, who can endure it? And the implicit answer seems to be no, no one, nobody. Judgment is universal. Thirdly, it's decreational. What do I mean by that? It's fascinating as you see the Lord coming to judge his people for their sin. Then you see creation almost unravelling. You see that there is chaos rather than order. That the good creation that he has formed seems to fall apart. It's unformed again. There's lots of talk of darkness, which in the Bible is a picture of God's anger. So, uh, 2 verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Or verse 10, before them the earth shakes, the heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. So there's darkness and we've got... Sort of the creation mandate from Genesis 1 to, to subdue the earth, to make it fruitful and fertile, is utterly undone again now. 1 verse 19 to 20. Fire has devoured the passes in the wilderness. Flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up and fire has devoured the passes in the wilderness. Just like Genesis 3, God judges. And we see this natural world again chaotic and out of kilter and not right. Might be you here before Christmas and you remember Exodus. And you're thinking there are real parallels there and you would be absolutely right. Remember that there's a plague of locusts that we saw in the Exodus. There's a plague of darkness. The Lord judges these so-called gods of Egypt. And we see who the true God is. And yet now his decreational judgment isn't falling on the gods outside of his people. They're falling on his people because they've turned their backs on him. And we say, why? Why is the Lord doing this to his people? Why are they suffering in this way? Why this darkness and these locusts and this fire? What is going on? And the honest answer is, in Joel, I don't think we're explicitly told why. A number of the prophets, you'll read it and it says, well, because of this action, I am judging you. But I'm not sure in Joel we know exactly what it is they've done. We can be sure of this. We can be sure that from the consequences we see something of what's going on. It's because they've wandered off from him. So if we're a doctor, we can see these symptoms of how God is treating his people. And so we see why that is. 
hundreds of years before Moses on the edge of the promised land, the land that they are now in. And he says to them, if you wander off, if you disobey God, if you're disobedient, then you will have to experience this. Have a listen. It's from Deuteronomy 28. It says, uh, at midday you will grope about like a blind person in the dark. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. So we, we might not know exactly why this has happened, but we know they've wandered off from him. This is the outworking of their disobedience. That's the disease. That's the disease. And judgment seems pretty what's well, going to happen pretty certain and yet the last few verses for our passage this morning give us some hope return to the Lord that last half of chapter 2 there it sounds dark and it sounds obsolete and it sounds pretty grim but there is this glimpse of hope verse 14 2 verse 14 have a look at that with me he says who knows He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. The door of hope is is open, ajar for us. How do we come back to the Lord? We we return. We turn back to him. The, The prophecy is written to provoke God's people to turn back to him, to do that, to plead with him for salvation. Verse 12, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. And it's striking, it's not just simply religious acts that he wants. Those aren't in and of themselves bad things, but that's not what he wants. There's a big movement at the moment in some corners of the church to to do away with the word religion or to say that God hates religion. And I agree that the outward things we do can be not right in themselves. They can simply be going through the motions. They can simply be slipping into mindless ritual or habits. Not necessarily, but they can be. And what really matters, though, do you see it there in verse 12? The Lord wants our hearts. Return to me with all your heart. Verse 13, rend your heart and not your garments. He does not want empty outward religious acts. In that way, he doesn't have much time for religion. But he wants our hearts. He wants you. He wants you. The great Baptist preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, puts it well like this. It's quite a long quote, so forgive me. But I think it's brilliant. He says, Garment rending and other outward signs of religious emotion are easily manifested and are frequently hypocritical. But to feel true repentance is far more difficult and consequently far less common. Men will attend to the most multiplied and minute ceremonial regulations, for such things are pleasing to the flesh. But true religion is too humbling, too heart-searching, too thorough for the taste of the carnal man. They prefer something more ostentatious, flimsy and worldly. Outward observances are temporarily comfortable. Eye and ear are pleased. Self-conceit is fed. And self-righteousness is puffed up. Apart from vital godliness, all religion is utterly vain. 
Offered without a sincere heart, every form of worship is a solemn sham and an impudent mockery of the majesty of heaven. It's not about simply going through the religious acts, coming to church more often, reading your Bible more, turning over the new leaf, or giving the impression of repentance. He wants us. He wants our hearts, the core of who we are, our inmost being. And then acting in line with that. I think this is relevant as we come to a time of, of prayer and of fasting for us as a church. As corporately we seek the Lord's face for our future. What he might have us do. Please don't do that just because everybody else is. Or because you think you ought to. Outward acts must always be because of changed hearts. Because we've turned to him. Because we've rendered them to him. Please do come and pray. Do come and fast. But do it as an expression of your individual heart or our corporate heart together. Rather than because it's what everyone else is doing and I want to look good like they do. Seeking the Lord together. Trusting him together. Because of our hearts. Maybe the question lingering in your mind is, is why do we return? Why? Why should we? What hope is there? I think in these final verses in chapter 2, or that we're looking at tonight, to, this morning, there are two reasons. Two reasons. The first is because who God is, the kind of God that we serve and we love. So he says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Verse 13. And those are words from Exodus 34. Again, you might remember them from before Christmas. And they're highlighted again and again and again in the Bible for us because they tell us the kind of God that we serve. They tell us what he's like. So do you remember in Exodus 33, Moses says to the Lord, tell me who you are. Show me your glory. Reveal yourself to me. Do you remember when the Lord says, I'll give you a little cleft in the rock to hide in. And then I will. And the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Who's the God of the Bible? He's a God who is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And so return to him because of his character, because of the kind of God he is. Many unbelievers and believers that I speak to miss that. They have in mind that God is the fuming headmaster who's always cross with them, always there looking out to, to find something to pick them up on, a mistake that they've made, rather than a loving God, a, a father who is slow to anger, abounding in love. Compassionate, gracious. This is the God we serve. This is the one who loves his people. And just as everyone was affected by the judgment, so everyone is to return. Verse 15. Everyone is to cry out. 
because of the judgment to come. It's a community thing. Verse 16, from the leaders to the children, there are nursing mums who are to come. There are newlyweds who are to cut short their honeymoons and to return. Verse 17, the religious establishment is to come. Come because of the character of God, because he is slow to anger and abounding in love and gracious and compassionate. Come because of who God is. And secondly, come because of the glory of God, because of his reputation among the nations. There in verse 17. Spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? His people are to appeal because of the reputation of God's name among the nations, his glory, his fame on the earth. It's not a self-seeking prayer, it's a God-seeking prayer. Lord, what would the nation say about you if you obliterated us? They would taunt and they would point and they would scoff. And you would look like you failed. Lord, act in line with your glory and your fame. Let your gracious deeds be seen among the nations. Reveal yourself. Use this even to bring more people to know what you're like. The one who created them to live as they were made to live. Praising the one who made them. They come because of the glory of God. As we finish, we need to be clear on verse 14. Verse 14 for today becomes a cast iron certainty. Who knows, he may turn and relent. Because of the cross of Jesus, we know the answer to that. It is a cast iron certainty. God loves us so much and he wants us to endure the future judgment day that Joel speaks of, this this second mountain that's to come. That on the cross he pours his, his right anger, his holy, his just anger on his son into himself, the heart of the Trinity. At the cross Jesus endures darkness and destruction. And the judgment we've just read of, he endures it for his people that that should rightly come to us. He takes it on himself. And so God assures us that on the final day, we will not face that anger, that judgment, if we're his, because Jesus has done it for us. His anger is quenched. His love is demonstrated. And if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or if you're not sure, if if you've wandered away from the Lord... And can I urge you to consider your position? Because these terrifying verses show us that we cannot endure it by ourselves. Joel says to us, he says, look back and learn for the future. And you'll know how to live now. And you've seen that God is just. And yet we've seen that when we return to him because of his character and because of his glory. So we look to the cross and we can find safety. Cry out to him for mercy. Return to him. Rend your hearts, says Joel.